morning. Well, good afternoon. I'm sorry. You know, I told myself I wouldn't make that mistake, but um, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, I know that we often show the PowerPoint up in here, but if you have a Bible, um, I do encourage you to turn to it. There's something about holding um, the Bible um, and, and seeing for yourself where in the Scripture certain things are. Um, and as you're turning there, or as we reorient ourselves now to the Word of God, I want to uh, just kind of start by um, introducing our sermon series. I do do sermon series, um, and I know that for the past couple of years, it's been something that uh, hasn't been uh, able to be done here because there's been guest preachers coming in and out. Um, so this fall, what I want to do is I want to start a series in 1 Corinthians uh, chapters 1 to 4. Only chapters 1 to 4, and then we'll end our series. And you're wondering maybe uh, why only chapters 1 to 4, and there are a few reasons, actually. Uh, the first is that the content of the first four chapters of Corinthians revolve specifically around two things. Uh, they revolve around the gospel and church. And as we begin this new season together, um, and you get to know a little bit more about me, I do want to share with you the two passions of my life. And these aren't just passions as a pastor, they're passions as a person which are the gospel of God and the church of Christ. And these chapters, these first four chapters, do a great job of showing how the gospel and the church relate together. So that's the first reason. Uh, the second reason is very practical, actually. Covering these four chapters will take about two and a half months, both, uh, and it will take us actually right up until uh, Christmas time, and then the New Year, and in 2017. So as we break in uh, 1 Corinthians 4, we'll go into the Christmas season, and then in 2017, I like to start by covering some vision and some core values. Uh, and third, uh, thirdly, third reason, if you actually look at 1 Corinthians 5, um, Paul begins this section by addressing a very specific issue in the church at Corinth concerning a son um, sleeping with his stepmom, and I wasn't so sure I wanted to start my time at Cornerstone <laughs> preaching on something like that. So for those three reasons, we're going to take a break at the end of chapter four. Uh, don't worry, we will come back to it eventually, and we will finish it together. But I did want to start off our time together being uh, strategic and being intentional in what we did cover. Now, the sermon series has a title, and it is an important title. The sermon series is called Being a Cross-Eyed Church. Now, that's a play on words, but there are two meanings behind it. Because the first thing, to be cross-eyed, means that your eyes are locked on, are settled on, and focused on the cross of Christ. And as a church committed to the gospel, we should want to be a church that's not only grounded in, but centered on and shaped by the cross of Christ. I mean, Jesus is our cornerstone. He is the one to which we look. He is the one on whom we stand. And so we must be a cross-eyed church. But secondly, if you've noticed, if you know anybody who is cross-eyed, it's very clear they look different. And in order to be a cross-eyed church, we need to be a church that looks different. If we're marked by the gospel of God, as we're transformed by the cross of Christ, we're going to look different. The church is going to look different than any human institution, any social club, any other kind of gathering. The church will look different in its preaching and its teaching and its content. Its believers will look different in their speech and in their conduct. And our body, we will look different in our worship. Our outreach should look different. Even our fellowship should begin to look different. 
And finally, we will look different than we did 15 years ago when Cornerstone was first started. We will look different than we did two years ago when all of this transition began. And we will even look different than the previous week. Because Jesus is sanctifying us. Jesus is molding the church. He is transforming us to be his church. So this is what it means to be a cross-eyed church. And so with that brief introduction, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 1 and read chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. And here's what I'd like us to do. After I read the passage, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. And I would encourage you to say aloud together, thanks be to God. And the reason that we do that is because when you say thanks be to God, it's a public witness that God has spoken to us in his word, and then we receive it joyfully and thankfully. So with that, let me read for us 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Please hear now the reading of God's holy word. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place Call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, I pray in this hour and in this time, this afternoon, that you would be with us and that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit, I do pray that you would be taking your very living word of God and breathing it into our souls and our hearts that you're bringing us to a newness of life, that you were restoring us, revitalizing us, and that you are reviving us. Father, that through your word and your gospel, that you will shape Cornerstone, you will shape our church to be a cross-eyed church that honors you and brings you glory. And so start that process even now as we turn to listen to your holy word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. It's getting dark in here. It was was ominous. (laughs) To understand the letter to the Corinthians, we first need to understand something about the history and the background of the Corinthians. Uh, The city of Corinth, if you didn't know, was a very wealthy city. Uh, In fact, the city of Corinth was in Greece. It was a Greek urban center, but it was under Roman rule. And the reason that the the city was so uh, uh, booming and, and flourishing was because this uh, city sat in the major trade route. Where it was located geographically, it was a major center of trade. And so there are lots of travelers, lots of goods, lots of uh, business coming in and through Corinth, and it made the city really alive, really alive socially, alive economically and commercially. And so every commentary, every scholar I read, often they would, they would sort of compare the city of Corinth to cities like New York or uh, Las Vegas or Los Angeles. And, you know, I've, I've read maybe about eight commentaries, and I did not find a single um, commentator who said, you know, the city of Corinth was alive like Philadelphia. Uh, you know, we just don't make the list. Um, but that might be a good thing, because if you know anything about the city of Corinth, they were known for great moral depravity. The disparity between rich and poor was huge. The city was pagan, and it was um, the cultic life, sacrificing to idols, was just so alive. You know, one commentator even said it was like going to a cafeteria, and you had your choice of religious practice. And actually, in fact, at that time of day, there was a, they turned the city name into a verb to Corinthianize, meant to play the harlot, meant to play the prostitute. And so in the midst of this kind of culture, this 
booming culture, but very pagan culture. Paul, Apostle Paul, enters. He goes straight to the synagogue, preaches. He gets kicked out, and he says, you know what? I'm going to start a church. And in the midst of this culture, he plants a church, and he's there for 18 months. This is all in the book of Acts 18. He plants the church. For 18 months, he ministers, but as he continues his missionary journey, he goes on. And so about three years has passed, and Paul now begins to hear about all of the issues and all of the scandals that have ravaged the Corinthian church. And in his absence, he begins to realize they have forgotten something. And so he writes this letter Again, to address the problems and the schisms of the church. And basically, here's the core problem. All of the ideology, the principles, and the values of the city of Corinth, they begin to seep into the church of Corinth. So that the church of Corinth, which was called to be in the world, was slowly becoming of the world. And the church of Corinth was no longer shining brightly as light to the world, but it was like a flickering flame and a candle about to be burnt out. And later in the book of Corinthians, Paul describes all of these different issues that plague the church. I mean, there's very perverse sexual immorality. There's church members arguing and suing one another. There's believers who are coming to the Lord's table and absolutely making a mockery of it. There are Christians who are abusing their church power and their spiritual gifts. There are people denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus. This church is a mess there is drama in every corner of it. And I'm convinced that if there was a reality television show at this time, there would be one on the Corinthian church and it would air during prime time. I think you could take any sample size of members at the Corinthian church and they would be a perfect guest on like the Jerry Springer show or Judge Judy. I mean, you just take your pick. These people were messed up. But here's the interesting thing. You could never know or you would never know that there was a problem in the Corinthian church just by reading the greeting. In fact, the first nine verses, you don't sense that there's an issue at all. Paul's very encouraging. He's very pleasant. And the question is why? Why is he like this? Has Paul forgotten that the Corinthian church is a mess? Why does he begin by extending grace and peace to these sinners? And the reason is this, because Paul is reminding the Corinthian church of who they are as a church of God. Paul's aim is to help and to heal the church, not to criticize and to chastise them. And so Paul begins not by condemning them, but by commending them. Paul doesn't begin with rebuke. He begins with reminder. And because they have forgotten, Paul draws their attention back again to what it means to be a cross-eyed church. What does it mean to have Jesus as the cornerstone of the church? And I want to say this. In a lot of ways, we are like the Corinthian church. Now, before you you go, what? None of these issues are ours. Not that their specific problems are ours or not that our specific struggles are theirs. But the sin that made the Corinthian church forget is the same sin that makes us forget. The temptations of the Corinthian church are the same temptations that we encounter. Therefore, Paul's message to the Corinthians is a message for all of us. This is not a letter for a church back then and over there. It's a letter for all of God's churches in all places at all times. And so the gospel truth, the one-sentence summary of the sermon is this. The church is God's possession, purchased by Christ, and the church is God's people, 
sanctified in Christ. So what is the church? Two things, God's people and God's possession. God's possession purchased by Christ, God's people sanctified in Christ. And so those are our two points to, um, today, this afternoon. So first, the church is God's possession purchased by Christ. So if you look with me at verse 2, listen to how Paul begins. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth. I'm going to pause there. Now, that may not seem like a big deal. You're saying, okay, Andrew, we've read this a hundred times in all of Paul's letters. But actually, that's not the case. If you compare the beginning of Paul's letters to the Corinthians and 2 Corinthians with any other greeting, you'll notice something markedly different. So actually, in Romans, this is how he starts the letter. To all those in Rome who are loved by God. Galatians. To the churches of Galatia. Ephesians. To the saints who are in Ephesus. Philippians, to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Colossians, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. To the Thessalonians, to the church of the Thessalonians. Now you hear that, and let me read for you again Paul's greeting to the Corinthians. To the church of God that is in Corinth. Did you catch it? Paul doesn't, if you're, and you're not careful, Paul does not write to the Corinthian church. Paul does not write to the church of Corinth. Instead, Paul writes to the church of God that's in Corinth. He's reminding the Corinthian believers, this church it ain't your church. It is not your church. This is a church of God. And you may think I'm making a big deal, but the Greek here is what you call a genitive, a possessive genitive. It means that the church belongs to God. The church is God's possession. And Paul needed to stress this because at the time, in the culture, this is a very wealthy city. There are a lot of patrons, influential and rich men. And these men, they had so much influence over society, so much sway in social circles. And because they did, when they came into the church, those who were of a lower class would look up to them and say, oh, you are so influential, you are so powerful, you're rich and wealthy, you should take ownership of this church. And then these men, these big men, started acting like the church belonged to them. And Paul interjects. You know, Paul interrupts. And he says, the church of God belongs to no man. No matter how powerful, how influential, how wise, how wealthy, or how charismatic. The church of God belongs to God alone. For the church was purchased with the payment of his precious son. The church is blood bought. And being so, the church belongs and is bound to God. And if you want to calculate the cost of the church, you must consider the cross of Christ. Because the church was purchased by Jesus. And therefore the church belongs to God. And here's why this is such an important lesson for all of us to know and to consider and why I wanted to start here. Because if the church is God's possession and is not man's, then the church must be submissive to God's agenda and not man's. God's agenda is not set by the vision of charismatic men and women you know, God's agenda is not agreed upon by a board or is not approved by or at a shareholder's meeting. No, that's not how it works at all. God's agenda is given to us in his word. His plans, what he desires of the church is revealed to us here. And so the church must turn to the Bible to get its direction. You know, this is always going to be a challenge of the church. It's either going to be, do we trust that the church is God's and therefore we receive our cues from him? Or do we believe the church is ours 
and our agenda and our purpose informed by worldly values and our definitions of success, that rules the church. That was the challenge of the believers here in the Corinthian church, and it's the same challenge for the contemporary church. You know, in verse 1, Paul starts off, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. That's actually an apostolic defense. Paul is defending his position. Paul is saying, listen, you got to listen to me. Why? Because I am an apostle called by the will of God. And he had to remind the Corinthians that, you know why? Because in the Corinthian church, and in the culture, and we'll get to this in chapter 2, um, some of the most wealthiest men were orators or rhetoricians, men who were very good at speaking, very clear, very clever in their speech, very per, uh, persuasive in the way they spoke. And a lot of the believers in the Corinthian church were listening to Paul, who was probably a man of short stature, right? Very intelligent, but didn't have much eloquence, right? Didn't have a booming personality, they, were this, they, had, they heard what Paul was saying, and then they looked over at these orators, these professional spokespeople, and they were going, you know what? I think we should listen more to them. They were being swayed by the world. They were like, we want these guys in our churches. And Paul is reminding them, listen, I may not be as eloquent as them. I may not have the allure that they have. But when I speak to you, I speak not as man. I speak to you with divine authority because I am God's apostle. I am his spokesperson, so you need to listen to me. I'm not as influential. I'm not as powerful. I'm not as good-looking. I'm not as tall. I'm not as charismatic as them. But I come with the divine word, so listen to what I have to say. You know, this day and age, we don't have the audible word of God, but we do have the written word of God. You know, any man who claims and stands up here and says, I'm a new apostle, heresy, false teacher. But we are led not by an apostle, but by the apostolic witness in the scriptures. So the church today, we're torn. Do we follow the word of God or do we look at it and see the way that these other institutions, the other organizations, how they're growing? Look at that. Look at their success. We want that. And we must fight the temptation. You know, are we going to surrender the future of Cornerstone into the hands of God in prayer as we surrender to him, asking God to have his way with us? Or are we going to be looking at other organizations and reading books on strategy and church growth and saying, oh, how do we grow our numbers? You know, as we embark on this journey together, I'm, I'm really thankful. I'm humbled to be called, you know, by you to be senior pastor. It's, it's an absolute privilege. It is Utterly humbling, but when I come into this church, I, I cannot come into this church believing that now this is my church. And you should not come thinking that this is now my church either. This is the Lord's church. Cornerstone was God's church before I came here. Cornerstone will stay God's church while I'm here. Cornerstone will stay God's church long after I pass away. There's no single person who has the rights to this blood-bought bride of Christ except the one who paid the price. You know, there's no pastor, there's no elder, there's no deacon, nor, nor even member who runs the church, dictates its goals and its vision. You know, it doesn't matter how faithful your attendance are or how generous your tithing and your offerings are. It doesn't matter how sacrificial you've been and how influential your presence is. The church's leaders and its members are useful and beneficial to the church only to the degree that they steer the church to submit to what God has planned for her. 
So I exhort you, church, in this new season of transition, partner with me in praying for Cornerstone, praying for our vision, praying for our mission, praying for our kingdom usefulness so that Cornerstone may truly be a church of God in Shalfant. A church of God that's for Lansdale. Let us avoid, resist thinking that this church belongs to us. Because when we do, we will start demanding things from the church. This church has this ministry and this program and this function, and we need to get involved in these areas and take up these issues. And then we begin dictating what the church needs to do, what the church needs to be, where the church needs to go. And we act as if it's our church and not God's. And what the scriptures are telling us is that we should expect things from the church, but only as God has told us. You know, when you submit what you want from a church to the Bible, it not only helps informs of what we should want, but corrects us from what we shouldn't want. You know, you should expect things from the church. That's not a bad thing. You should expect Bible-based, gospel-centered teaching and preaching. But you shouldn't expect a Jerry Seinfeld-like comedy routine up here. You should expect Christ-centered worship, but not a U2 concert performance. No pressure, Sam. You should expect the proper administration of the sacraments that point you to Christ. Not a man-centered emotional experience. You should expect godly leadership and faithful shepherding, but not a domineering leadership that's employed by Fortune 500 companies. You should expect fellowship with the saints, but not just recreational, fun-centered outings. We should expect, and rightly so, we should expect many things from the church. This is right and it's good. It's a sign that you're committed, that you love the church, that you are faithful to her. But they must be in accord with God's agenda. In fact, to not expect anything from the church, to not want anything from the church is probably a sign that you don't care. You're not involved. You have lost interest. So, love this church want to see, desire, pray to see many things happen in her and through her. Pray with me. Pray for me, please. Pray with one another. Pray for one another. Pray that this church belongs to God. Pray that he will drive the vision and mission of the church. Pray that we would set aside our dreams and our ambitions and hopes for Cornerstone to trust that what God has in store is much better. Reject that which we think is more practical, most impressive, elaborate, and seek that which is faithful, biblical, and worshipful. And ultimately, let the Lord define the success of this church. Cornerstone, this church is God's church. So may the first step in being a cross-centered church be recognizing we are God's possession. We are purchased through the cross of Christ and by the blood of Christ. Amen? Amen. Second, the church is God's people sanctified in Christ. The church is God's people sanctified in Christ. So Paul continues in verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their God and ours. You see, the church here is not a building, it's not a place, but the church is a people. And we need to understand, this is foundational, you understand the church is a people of God because it will help us be a better church. Because 
being the church then becomes about living out an identity that God has given us in Christ. Being the church is not about mimicking the strategies of different organizations or duplicating the policies of other companies. The Greek word for church is the word ekklesia. And that word ekklesia can also be translated assembly. Assembly of God's people. So if you read the Old Testament in the Greek translation, every time there's the people of God, the assembly of God, it's the word ekklesia. The church is a people who are now assembled by faith in union to Jesus. And so you got to listen carefully how Paul describes the church. He calls the church those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. He calls the Corinthian believers, he calls the Corinthian church saints. Now, this is absolutely shocking because the behavior of the Corinthian church is far from sanctified, far from saintly. Sanctification, if you don't know, means it's the process by which we are more and more free from sin and more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. And you look at these people and you read through the letter and you say, how in the world are these people sanctified? How are they considered saints? And you almost wonder, does, did Paul forget? Have they, has he forgotten what the Corinthians have done? Or do you, do you imagine Paul's writing this and he's girding his teeth and just kind of forcefully saying it? You know when someone comes and you don't really like them, but you got to act like you're happy? Hey, you know, how are you? Is that what Paul, he's girding on to the saints? In Corinth, no, not at all. Paul is reminding them, you are God's possession. You were purchased by Christ, but you are now God's people because you have had something done to you. You see, they didn't earn their sanctification. They didn't earn or merit their sainthood. Rather, as the blood-bought bride of Christ, they have been washed clean of their sins. They have been clothed in a righteousness that's not their own. They've been merited with works they didn't do, and they've been made spotless in a way they couldn't have done it on their own. The reason that they are sanctified in saints is because they're united to Jesus. Did you notice that? They are not sanctified by Jesus. They are sanctified in Jesus. This is what it means to be a cross-eyed church, to be a people, to to not be a a building or a place, but a people united to Jesus. And through his work on the cross, enslaved sinners become sanctified saints. You hear that? The Savior takes enslaved sinners and he turns them to sanctified saints. This is the gospel not only for the Corinthian believers, but all believers Every one of you here in this room, that your standing before God is not conditioned upon your perfection, and it's not conditioned even upon your effort toward perfection, but upon your association with one who lived perfectly. You may feel like a sinner, you may feel like a failure, you may feel like a spiritual loser, but in Christ, this very moment, the Father declares you a saint, sanctified and set apart for himself. And this is so hard for us to believe. It's so hard for me to believe. Because we, many are enslaved in sin. We feel powerless to slay addictions. We understand and we see how frail and how weak our faith is. We see how full of doubts and anxieties and worries we are. We constantly wrestle with discouragements and loneliness and emptiness. We haven't picked up a Bible in years. We haven't prayed a prayer in months. We haven't attended church maybe in a long time. But even then, even then, 
for all who cling to Jesus, for all who are united to him, God says, you are my treasured possession. You are my precious people. Why? Because when you identify with the Son, when you are united to him, his status becomes your status. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. And you are treated not as you deserve, but as Christ has earned. Two weeks ago, I had the fortunate experience of uh, taking a trip to San Francisco. And one thing in planning for the trip that I quickly realized is, uh, man, that is an expensive city. And I was looking at hotels, and I said, I guess I'm living on the streets for a week. Uh, Until my brother uh, offered, he said, Andrew, you know what? If you find a cheaper place, uh, I could pay for your hotel. So I found a place in Oakland, which is right across the bay. It's about a 30-minute train ride in. And uh, my brother was able to pay for it because um, he's a consultant. He he lived in China for two years. Uh, Now he's in Hong Kong. And as a result, as um, part of his job, he has to travel a lot. And there are times that he's in hotels for about two to three months at a time. And so he's amassed a ton of points. He is, you know, platinum, elite member. And so using his reward from his platinum status, he was able to get me a a room under my name. You see, because of my relationship to him, his rewards became mine. His status became mine. And I got to enjoy the benefits of an elite member. And so, to be honest, when I walked in, it was so impressive because there was this line of people waiting to check in. And I was in the line until I noticed that there was somebody else at the counter, but no line. And there was a sign that said, elite member. And then I walk over, and the rug says, elite. I mean, everything is elite about this. And, you know, I got so many perks. Early check-in, late check-out free internet stay, but the best perk of all, I had access to the elite members lounge where they had food and soda and water and coffee. And, you know, was I an elite member because of my efforts, because of all the time I spent, because of all my travel? No. But I was counted as an elite by the efforts of another. You know, are you saints of God because you've lived a perfectly holy life? Are you sanctified because you've covered, conquered every sin, you've resisted every temptation? No! You are considered a sanctified saint because of the efforts of another, namely Jesus. He makes you a saint. And see, this is the gospel we have such a hard time believing. And this is why Christians have a hard time being the church, being the people of God, because we don't understand the gospel. We don't understand fully our new identity. You know, going back to the hotel story, you know, I'm just a regular guy. And being treated as elite, I felt like a fraud. I really did at first, you know. Uh, Actually, when I first went to the members lounge, I didn't even know how to get in. So uh, I'll share something embarrassing. Um, The elite members lounge closes at 10 o'clock. The first night, I went at like 11 o'clock when no one was there. And I was, like, practicing going in so I didn't look stupid the next day. So I was, like, practicing putting my door in. You know, so when I walk in, I'm not looking around. I can just, you know, pretend all cool. I had to practice in order to get in. Why? Because, yeah, I was counted as elite, but I'd never been in an elite lounge before. 
I didn't know how to live into that identity. I was very timid in the food I was grabbing. And, but honestly, as the week went by, morning after morning, as I went in, as I took advantage of the benefits, the more comfortable I felt lounging around on the couch, grabbing what I wanted and when I wanted. And so by the end of the trip, when I ate breakfast, I took a whole table. You know, I took one of everything. You know, there's coffee, juice, and water, and eggs, and bacon, and then another plate of bacon. And, you know, just I, I was taking advantage of the whole thing. In the same way, you, the church, you are God's people. You're counted as saints, but we don't know how to live into that identity. We, we come before God and we're, oh, we're sinners. And yes, you are, but God calls you a saint. So instead of identifying with what you've done, identify with what has been done to you. To know the gospel, to know the gospel changes your heart. That because of the gospel, friends, when the Father looks down upon you, you who are united now to Jesus, when he looks upon you, his people, the church, he sees his saints and his heart delights. And when the Father looks down upon you, he goes, oh, the church, not, oh, the church. So when a church and its people are as messed up as the Corinthian church, God doesn't say, you know, to the spawns of Satan, called to be sinners. No, he says to those sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. Do you know that in order for Jesus to save us, he entered the miry clay. He entered into the mud pit of our sin and sorrow and he pulled us out. Do you think he went through all of that work on the cross dipping into the mud to bring us out without washing us then? Without making us clean? Would that make sense? I remember this story in seminary. A friend once told me that they were speaking on the cell phone while on the bathroom, in the bathroom. Long story short, I don't want to go into details, but she had one of those uh, flip uh, sliding phones that you end the call by sliding it down and you answer by picking it up. And after her phone call, she ended the call, slid it, but it slid right through her hands right in between her legs, and bloop, right into the toilet. And without a second thought, without flushing, she reached into the toilet bowl, arm deep, grab it to save her phone. Now let me ask you, who in their right mind would go through the trouble of retrieving your phone from a toilet that you just used, take out your phone, and then do nothing to fix it or to dry it or to clean it up? Who would pull it out of the filth and then leave it without attending to it? It would be utterly pointless. It is not for men, women who have their lives put together. It's a hospital for sinners. And as much as I love that and I agree with it, as I was reading Corinthians and thinking about that expression, I thought, you know what? I think that needs to be tweaked. Yes, it's true. The church is not a museum for saints, but I think it's more than a hospital for sinners. I think the church is a haven for saints. The church is a harbor for saints of God who are struggling with sin and suffering. Because like a boat, you are out on the waters. You are wrestling with sin. You are being beaten and taken over by the sufferings and sorrows of the world. You are struggling to set your course and follow the Lord. But when you dock, when you come and we are the church, when you dock in the harbor, we are refreshed. You know what? Because this is the point. Your primary identity is not a sinner striving towards sainthood. 
Your primary identity is a saint who's battling remaining sin. You see, that's foundationally different. You are not primarily a sinner and you're working and trying your best to attain sainthood. In Christ, you are a saint. You are struggling and you are resisting and you are battling remaining sin. And the Spirit of God works the gospel in our lives, reminding us of who we are as the people of God. So let me close with this illustration. When I was in high school, I was asked to play at a talent show at a Korean church. Um, so I asked, what's the name of the church? And they said, oh, it's a Catholic church. You wouldn't know. And I was like, well, tell me. And um, actually, it was caught me as quite a surprise. And some of you have heard of this, but the church name was called um, St. Andrew Kim Catholic Church. Only Maryland, the real church, beautiful church, actually. Uh, I did research on it. St. Andrew Kim was actually the first Korean-born Catholic priest. Uh, he was martyred at age 25. And so in respect for him, they had St. Andrew Catholic Church, St. Andrew Kim Catholic Church. And, uh, you know, since then, um, you know, I guess whenever people f hear about the church name, they always come up to me and they're like, hey, do you know you're a saint? I'm like, hey, do you know how many times I heard that joke? Um, Hey, do you know you're a saint? And it's a joke because what? We don't think of ourselves as saints. But the beauty of the gospel is this. For all those who believe and are united to Jesus, God says to you, hey, do you know you are a saint? What does it mean to be a cross-eyed church? First, it means to understand that the church is God's possession, purchased by Christ. And therefore, we follow God's agenda revealed in the scriptures. But secondly, what it means to be a cross-eyed church is that the church is God's people, sanctified in Christ, and therefore we live out our identities as saints. And so as we continue on in the book of 1 Corinthians, this is my prayer, and may it be your prayer as well, that, that God continually shapes us, he molds us to be a cross-eyed church, that we come to a greater understanding of who we are in Christ, that we are purchased by him to be his possession, we are sanctified in him, to be his people. Would you join me in prayer? Father, at this time, we do thank you so much for your grace, your mercy. We thank you for all that you've done in making us your own, both a possession and a people. We thank you so much that these things we do not become your possession. We do not become your people by our work or our merit, but by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ through all he's done for us. We thank you that now, Lord, as you challenge us in this new season of what it means to be a church, what it means to be your church, pray that you would continually pour out your spirit among us so that we're unified so that we are of one passion and one zeal, that we are under one Lord sharing the same confession. And we thank you, Lord, that one of the ways we can express being together as one church is through partaking of one meal. So as we turn our attention now, Lord, to the Lord's Supper, I pray, Father, that you would speak to us through not only your preached word, but that you would encourage our hearts now through your visible word. Holy Spirit, be reminding us, conforming us to these truths. We now prepare to partake of the supper.
the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your invitation to the Lord's table. We thank you that your invitation, Lord, is not based upon anything within us, but wholly upon the righteousness and the faith and the good work and the perfect life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him we are called your own. And I pray, Lord, that as we are nourished and reminded again in this meal, that our hearts are sealed to you, that we as the blood-bought bride of Christ would belong to you, would be bound to you. Now nourish us in our faith that as we leave this place, we leave knowing that in Christ we are saints of God, called and set apart to live unto your glory. In the name of Jesus we pray. Receive now the benediction. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who sanctifies us and calls us saints, and the love of God the Father Almighty, who purchased us to be his own, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit uniting us and making us a cross-eyed church, may the blessing of the triune God be with God's people both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in peace.